Well, good morning again, you guys. If you have not yet, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Revelation 21. That's where we are uh, this morning. Uh, in 1952, uh, Florence Chadwick uh, stepped off the coast of Catalina Island, and her attempt was that she wanted to swim to the coast of Southern California. It's about a 22-mile swim. And uh, as she was doing that, uh, that to me sounds like a death wish. You know, trying to swim 22 miles in the Pacific Ocean sounds horrible. But for her, she was a seasoned swimmer. She'd actually had swam across the English Channel both ways, which is about 42 miles. So this seems like a pretty competent thing that she could do. And uh, that day as she stepped foot into the waters of the Pacific, though, she was, uh, it was really cold. Uh, the weather was extremely foggy. And as she swam, there were boats that kind of accompanied her and kind of like floated next to her um, just to kind of monitor her and how she was doing. She swam for 15 hours, 15 hours. She became so emotionally and physically exhausted that she kept crying out, I, I, want, to be ba- I want to get in the boat, just pull me back into the boat, which is what I would have done after like 10 seconds. But she's doing that for 15 hours, and her mother is in one of those boats, And her mother was saying to her, uh, I can see the shore. I can see the shore. You're you're not that far away. And she says, oh, I I don't care. I don't care. Just pull me out. So she got into the boat. And when she got into the boat, she could see that she was less than a half a mile away from the shore. Less than a half a mile away. So 21 and a half miles. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. She was told how far she was, but it it didn't matter to her, right? She couldn't see it. I think life can often feel pretty foggy as well, right? The cares of this world, stress, painful circumstances, they often surround us. It feels very foggy, and we often wonder, can anything cut through the fog? Right? I, I wonder this morning if you can see the shore. I wonder if you can see the shore. And I'm here to tell you that's what Advent is designed to do. It's designed to help us to see the shore. Uh, today we begin to walk through the season of Advent, as we've already said a few times. And Advent, uh, for those who are unfamiliar with it, is simply a word that means the arrival of a significant person or event. And as believers, we can think of nothing more significant of a person or event than the arrival of the Son of God Himself in human flesh into this world in order to redeem us. I mean, there is nothing greater than that. And because Jesus came for the very first time, and we celebrate this at Christmas every year, we kind of look back with one eye upon His first advent, and we look ahead with another eye, right, to His second advent. And as we live in between these advents of Jesus, we are people who are filled with hope, the same kind of hope that that Adam and Cece uh, we're sharing with us about this morning. And so, as a church, we're, we're following along in our homes, walking through the Jesse Tree Advent calendar, looking back at that first Advent. But on Sundays together in this time, we're going to be looking ahead to the second Advent of Jesus in Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22. Now, I know, as maybe Amy said this to you or I said this to you, to turn in your Bibles to Revelation, uh, there was a, probably a, a bunch of different reactions that took place. Some of you uh, probably begin to wag your tails, like this is like your favorite book in the world, you're so excited, I'm going to give you all the decoding that you think, you know. Uh, and some of you are just like nervous, you know, because uh, you, you approach Revelation very differently. Uh, it's a book that just kind of seems weird to you. 
Uh, I once heard Alistair Begg say a lot of people approach Revelation like a Rubik's Cube. You know, it's just something that I'm trying to sort through and, and, uh, and solve eventually. And so there are some people who are probably too infatuated with this book. And others toss it aside as really unhelpful, uh, just confusing. And what I'm here to tell you is that we are going to do neither of those things. Uh, we're going to do neither of those things. Revelation is extremely helpful for us. It's been for every Christian, but it's not a Rubik's Cube. Uh, you see, Revelation was written to real people. It was written in real time, and it offered them real hope in their current circumstances. To be exact, this book was written to first century churches in seven different cities in the Roman province of Asia. So, it's now modern-day Turkey. And these churches were threatened in various ways. They were threatened by false teachers, persecution, idolatry, temptation to leave God for something uh, that they thought was better, right? And some were really cozy and complacent even in their faith. So, this was written to those believers. We need to have them in mind first so that they might endure, so that they wouldn't be deceived by the allures of the world, right? So that they would endure through times when they're being persecuted and even killed under the emperor Nero, I mean, when these Christians first received the book of Revelation, it was a bloody time. It was a difficult time. And this word was given to them, and now it comes to us with that same emphasis. It's giving you the shoreline. That's what it's doing. And what we discover in these last two chapters is that God is jaw-droppingly gracious, and our eternal shore is Him coming nearer to us than we would dare even dream. And for some, this is our greatest hope. And for some, this is their great end. What we see today is that God is going to dwell with His people, and He's going to make all things new. And this is for those who conquer. This is for those who conquer in this life. So, I want to look at two different parts of this passage, verses 1 through 5 and verses 6 through 8. And in the first part, verses 1 through 5, I want, to ask us the question, I want to ask the question, what's so great about heaven? What's so great about heaven? Verses 1 through 5. And in verses 6 through 8, I want to ask, how can this be your eternal shore? How can this be your eternal shore? So, let's look at verses 1 through 5. What makes heaven so great? What makes heaven so great? It says in verse 1 again, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more." Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Uh, so if we're being honest, sometimes it's difficult to get excited about heaven. When you think about the new creation, I mean, it lasts for a really long time. I've heard multiple people comment that to me over the years, like, it kind of freaks me out, you know? And I'll admit, as a kid, I would sit there and think about how long heaven goes for and how it never ends, and I would get terrified, okay? A little nervous about it. But many people have this secret fear about heaven, namely that it sounds really boring to them. 
okay? Uh, for some, it's like they envision it being this eternal choir practice where we're all walking around in togas and, you know, um, listening to Morgan Freeman read the dictionary all day long or something like that, you know? Uh, but we see here that that is not the case at all. Heaven is better than we could have ever dreamt, right? What makes it so great? Well, notice some key repeated words here. It's basically out with the old and in with the new. It's out with the old and in with the new. Well, what is old? What's gone? Well, it says in verse 1, the first heaven and the first earth pass away. And then in this sort of summary statement of verse 4, the former things have passed away. So the first heaven, the first earth have passed away, and now we're going to see this new, this new heaven, this new earth, and they become one, basically. Right, so there also, there are things that are described here as no more in verse 1 and in verse 4. What things are no more? What does it say? Death is no more. Mourning is no more. Crying is no more. Pain is no more. And then in verse 1 it says the sea is no more. All right, well, why the sea? That's kind of a bummer, right? I mean, if you like the Oregon coast, you're probably bummed out a little bit right now. Maybe you hate the Oregon coast because of the weather or you're afraid of the big one that's going to hit or whatever it is, but I imagine that you at least love the idea of Hawaii or Tahiti or something. And so when you see the sea is no more, that kind of seems kind of sad, right? But why the sea? Well, if you remember back when we looked at Luke, when Jesus calmed the sea, we talked about this in part, but, but it's important to bring up again here that the sea is an image in the Bible that represents trouble, represents chaos or disorder, and at times just full-blown evil. So just consider this in the Old Testament. The sea at times referred to Israel's military enemies like Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh. Right, the final destruction of evil in Isaiah is closely linked to God defeating Leviathan, is what it talks about. In Daniel, you see things like monsters come out of the sea, right, all this imagery, okay? But even in, in the New Testament, in Revelation, we see in chapter 13, verse 1, a beast rising out of the sea. So if you read this in one sitting, you'd be having that in your mind. Even the chapter right before this, in verse 3 of chapter 20, and in verse 10, we see the ancient serpent, Satan himself, thrown into the abyss, right, the sea. Right, the sea's not a great place. This is all sea imagery. Think about it. No one lives on the sea, right? Sure, we got our houseboats on the Columbia, right? But nobody, like, lives out in the Pacific Ocean on the water. Nobody does that. Why? Because a sea is not a destination. It's a, it's a thing that you have to pass through to actually get to the destination. There's nothing permanent about the sea. So, this, all this is sea imagery. No wonder verse 1 opens with, there's no more sea. There's no more chaos. There's no more enemies of God. There isn't even death. There's no remnants of the fallen world. There is no more sea. There's no more pain. No more pain means no chronic illness, no achy joints, no tears means no depression, no fear, no worry, no stress, no misunderstanding, no relational pain and conflict. There's going to be no more emergency rooms, no more intensive care wards, no more chemotherapy units. No more pharmacies or children's hospitals. No more funeral homes. Right? There, there's, there's no more homicide departments. There's no grief counselors. There's no security guards. Right? There's not even more taxes, and there's no more DMV, right, in heaven, okay? 
God has already saved us, you guys, from the punishment of sin, but there, will, but there we will be saved from the power of sin and the presence of sin and ultimately the pain of sin. See, we will finally experience life in a world without sin, which, which maybe is the greatest overlooked reality. No more sin. I'll finally be able to look out, my, out of my eyes without the selfishness and suspicion and jealousy that can so often plague my heart. All right, so, so this is what is out with in the old. What's, what's in with the new? Well, lots. We see a new heaven and a new earth. Like I said, they become one. All right, there's a new city, a new Jerusalem, the city of God coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride. Oh, this is a wedding. This is a wedding. And just think about it. Every wedding that you go to is celebrating something new, right? It's a new relationship, a new start, a new beginning. The word new here means new in kind, not just new in it being a different thing or another thing. It's new. It's a whole new kind of thing. And so, John is describing the complete transformation of all things. And it would seem what makes this world new is that the old is gone, but also there is the presence of something brand new. What is that? Do you see it in the pages there? It's God. There's a key word here that when you see it, it's actually really striking when you read verses 3 through 4. It's a small word, but it's really striking. It's the word with, right? God is what? With man. He is dwelling where? With them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be where? With them, as their God. It's the word with. And what is God doing with His people? He's only doing one thing, you're told in these verses. God's doing one thing, and what's He doing? He is wiping away every tear from your eyes. Oh, my word. I mean, what an intimate action. I mean, if somebody is crying, most people feel uncomfortable, don't they? Why? Well, not because we think crying is weird, but because we don't know what to do often, right? We don't know what to say, so we sympathize. We at most, um, you know, say some encouraging words. Maybe if you know them well, you might give them a hug, right? But we want to do something. We don't know what to do. You never walk up and just wipe away someone's tears from their eyes. That's something that maybe only a parent would do to a child or a husband would do to a wife. That's an intimate act, and that's exactly what God is doing in the new heavens and the new earth. This is an intimate action. What this is showing you is that God is the consoler of His people. The eternal shore, then, is characterized by God's nearness to you. This, this thread of God with us is woven as the hope of humanity throughout Scripture. Right? It's so important to see that. When you see Adam and Eve created in the garden, they're walking with God. God is with them. And because of God's holiness and humanity's sin, God with us was, was ruined, wasn't it? Right? But then we see God's presence dwell in a tabernacle with His people, in a temple, right? ultimately in the city of Jerusalem. But where God lived, people could not enter because of God's holiness. But then Jesus comes, right? The first advent. He comes. And we experience God with us again, right? Emmanuel. Then through His death for our sin and resurrection and victory over that sin and death, He defeats that, and then He ascends, and when He ascends, He sends us the Holy Spirit. So, that same Spirit that dwelled in the tabernacle that we could not approach now lives in you, God with us. This is why when it's declared from the throne, I am making all things new, it's a present tense statement. It's not full and final yet, but it's happening. 
This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That describes your life today in Christ. I am making all things new, beginning with sending the Spirit into our lives. And that's why when Jesus commissions us to go and make disciples of all nations, He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And what's the great hope at the end of the age? It's that God would be with us. The thread never stops. It just gets better along the way. It's Emmanuel. Let me ask you, does this hope thrill your soul? Does this hope thrill your soul? Remember verse 2, it says, heaven is likened to a wedding, and on a wedding the bride and groom get excited for their celebration, right? But in reality, they're just excited to get married to each other. They're excited for the person more than the celebration. I mean, could you imagine talking to a bride a week before her wedding day, and she's talking about how excited she is for the cake, right, and the dancing, and the crowd, and the dress, and the food. And if you're close enough to her, you're like, you, for, you forgot to mention one thing. What about the groom? And what if her reply to you was like, oh, yeah, he can come. He can come. You know, you'd be like, hey, uh, maybe you shouldn't do this thing. You know, like, you, you're missing the whole idea of what a wedding is about, aren't you? It's because you love the person. You want to be united to them. You want to be with them, right? right? You might remind her she's missing the whole point. This reminds me of that great question that John Piper famously asked years ago when he says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus weren't there? It's a haunting question. Let me ask you, is it amazing to you that there will be no more death, no more grief, and no more tears? Or is it more attractive to you that God will be with you? Yes, what makes heaven so great is that the former things have passed away, but they've passed away because God is there. There's no death in God. There's no sin in God. So then there's, there's, no, there's no grief in God. There, you know, those kinds of things. It's because God is there. It's Emmanuel like you've never experienced Him before. That's why heaven is so great. So how can you know this is your eternal shore? Let's look at verses 6 through 8. What does it say? He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers, excuse me, will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
What a statement right out of the gate there in verse 6. It is done. It is done. It's just showing you that God is in command of life. And in the end, all things will work out just as He wills. This means, you guys, that the future is not problematic for Christians. The future is not problematic for us. God's Word reassures us this is the final outcome. And verse 6 continues, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So, it's like Jesus saying to you, I am the A and the Z. And we know this is Jesus saying this because if you look at the very first chapter in the book of Revelation, verse 8 to be exact, Jesus says that He is the Alpha and the Omega. He was before all things, before all of creation, and He is the end. Right? He's not catching up with history, right? He's, he's there. Like, he's the end of it all. This is who the person on the throne is and what He is doing. He's making all things new, and it will come to perfect fruition. And then in verse 6, He says this interesting statement, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Right? If you're thirsty and you need to drink and you have no money, it's okay. Right? That's what's needed, actually. This is drinking by grace. This is Jesus picking up the tab, right? What's the point of this? Well, the point is if you aren't thirsty, then you will deny a drink offered to you, won't you? Right, that's the point. If you are dying of thirst and the offer from the water of life is what you've been longing for, you will see this is the only thing that will satisfy you. So, do you see what this is saying? The point is that unless you feel a need, you will not seek this satisfaction, if you are thirsty, getting to this day, that's a good thing. If you're, I'm good, not so much. So, this is already beginning to be answered for us. How can this be your eternal shore? Well, number one, you have to be thirsty. You have to be thirsty. Well, who are the thirsty? They're the same people in verse 7 that are described as the one who conquers. They're the conquerors, aren't they? Those are the people that will have this heritage, right? The spring of the water of life. God is their God, and God is not just their God. They are called God's children, right? This is familial language, right? This is informing even how God is wiping away the tears from our eyes. And this idea of conquerors, though, is, is this important theme here in this book because back in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, you see Jesus write seven letters to these different seven churches that I described at the beginning of this whole message. And in those letters, each church has an issue. Each church maybe has sin that they need to deal with. And so Jesus gives them a command. And every time He says, if you conquer, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. Every letter, to the one who conquers. And they're promised something. And what they are promised is fulfilled at the end of this book. Every single thing that He promises them is here at the end of this book. Those who conquer, who overcome the world, will inherit this reality that God is their God and they are a child, right? They are God's child. This heritage is a special one. But then we get to verse 8, and your honest thought might be, oh man, we were having so much fun in the new heavens and the new earth. Why do we have to go up and bring up hell? Why this? You know? Well, it's true. Hell's fallen on hard times this, during our lives, right? It's fallen on hard times these days. 
And it doesn't really make sense to a pluralistic culture to talk about hell, does it? I mean, a day and age where we say, you do you and I'll do me, if we say it doesn't matter what you believe and what you go for as long as it works for you, then yeah, all roads lead to God. That's the, that's the world we swim in. That's the water that we swim in. So, when we get to passages like this in verse 8, we're like, what is going on here? This does not make sense of the world. Well, it actually does, but we've been informed a lot by how we're supposed to view the world by other people. Right? This, this, it makes complete sense why we'd have a problem with this. I mean, in a culture like ours, how can anybody be right and wrong? How can there be truth and falsehood? How could God ever reject people who are sincere, who are even spiritual, who you might say are a good person even? It makes sense that we have a hard time with verse 8. But look at the list. Look at the list. I mean, I think most of us, when we read this, we're like, well, I at least got the sorcery one down, right? You're, not, you're feeling good about that one right there. I don't know. I don't see any wizards here this morning. Um, maybe at home. I don't know what you do at your house. But um, look at the rest, right? I mean, how much… Let me ask you, how much of something does it take for you to own the label? How much of something does it take for you to own the label? Meaning, how many times do you have to act cowardly before you're labeled a coward? I mean, have you ever shrunk back and been afraid to identify with Jesus? It's kind of interesting that cowardly heads up the list. I mean, because John is not speaking about natural timidity. John wrote Revelation. But he's talking about that last resort where we choose self and safety over Christ, where we fear the threat of evil over trusting in the love of Jesus. I mean, how faithful are you, really? I'm asking myself that this week. Are you detestable? It's kind of a word that means smelly. Not real body odor, right? You're all right, Danny, on this one, right? So, murderers. You might say you've got this one down, yet Jesus says those who have hatred in their heart are guilty of murder. That's not because Jesus is raising the bar, trying to make it impossible for you and I to obey, but He's showing you the thread of murder and how that goes all the way deep into your heart. It begins with hatred, right? If I, if I live out hatred in its fullness, murder is the action. sexually immoral. We think of our eyes, our thoughts. We realize here what we use our body for matters to God. Idolaters. Well, that's just taking something that isn't God and propping it up in front of my heart and saying, this is everything to me. You can't take that away. This could be our kids. It could be our spouse. It could be the person that we want to be our spouse. It could be just comfort, whatever that is for us. It could be security. And if we get through this list unscathed somehow, we get to liars. We don't just lie, do we? We're liars. I mean, this is why when you lie, someone doesn't say to you, you're a good person who told a lie. They say, you're a liar. Right. I mean, how much of something do you have to do before you get labeled that, before you are that? Right, what's the portion of these people? The lake of fire and sulfur. I mean, remember, this is imagery. What's the imagery pointing you towards? It says, it tells you, the second death. 
right? It's that ultimate no turning back judgment. God hates sin, and if He's going to dwell with His people in new heavens and new earth, He will not stand it in His presence. This is logical. I think it's really hard to see ourselves here other than in verses 1 through 7. We read 1 through 7, we're like, oh, for sure, we get to 8, we're like, man, those other people. But, but I don't know if that, how much of that is the case. Uh, I really enjoy and, and really appreciate J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, and he has um, this really helpful analogy in it, and he, he talks about how we have a hard time gauging the seriousness of our sin and how we struggle to see ourselves clearly. And he says, the blind man can see no difference between a masterpiece of Raphael and a child scribbling. The deaf man cannot distinguish between a penny whistle and a cathedral organ. The very animals whose smell is most offensive to us have no idea that they are offensive and are not offensive to one another. He's saying, if I'm a blind man, I could see the most beautiful masterpiece or a child's chicken scratch, and I don't know the difference. I could hear a symphony or, or like someone playing a recorder to Mary Had a Little Lamb. I don't know the difference, right? If I'm a dog, we all know you've had a dog come up to you and you're like, wow, you need a bath. But that dog is happy. He doesn't know. He stinks. He doesn't hang out with other dogs, even if he smells more than the other or the other smells more. They have no idea. They're fine in their stench, right? And he's saying this exactly is how fallen men and women are. We can have no just what a vile thing sin is in the sight of God whose handiwork is absolutely perfect. So, how can we hear clearly? How can we smell our foulness? How can we truly see? Well, it's not by comparing myself to other people. See, Revelation 21, what is it doing? It's, it's putting hearing aids into our ears. Right? It's putting the most beautiful scent in front of our nose and glasses over our blurry eyes to see ourselves for who we really are when we stand in the perfect, righteous, holy presence of God. So, here's the million-dollar question how can anybody conquer? How can you conquer? If those are the people that drink, if those are the people who this is their reality. Well, Revelation 5 verse 4, John is discouraged, like you and I are. Because to hear someone just say, go and conquer, overcome, we think, well, how could I ever do that? How could I ever not fulfill and live into what all this list is describing for me? And in Revelation chapter 5, it says, John begins to, quote, weep loudly because no one could conquer. No one was perfect. No one was worthy to open the scroll and bring about the end and bring in the new beginning. But then verse 5, we were told that someone said to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of, da of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll. He can bring about the end. He can bring about the new beginning. So how do you conquer? Jesus has conquered. How do you conquer? Well, chapter 12 of Revelation 11, verse 11 says, they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. 
Even in chapter 7, we see a whole multitude of people in heaven worshiping God. John asks the question, who are these people? And the answer is, these are those who've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, how do you overcome, right? How do you take your soiled garments, right, that reek with sin and wash them so that they're extremely white for your wedding day, right? How do you find yourself in verse 7 and not verse 8? How do you conquer in this life? Well, it's by giving your life to the one who conquered for you. This is why Romans 8 says what? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Guys, not even your sin can separate you from God. Right? When you come to Jesus in faith and you say, I am thirsty, I am thirsty. I have nothing to offer. The only thing I have to offer is my dirty garments. That's all I have to offer. I have no money. Please wash me of my sin. That, that's coming to Jesus in faith, the one who's conquered for you, and uniting yourself with Him. So how can this be your shore? Well, it's only by faith in the one who conquered for you. Well, what does this actually mean for you? Does this mean that we don't need to conquer in life? That all these sort of commands to conquer to these seven churches don't matter? Can we just float our way to shore? Well, it may feel like that most days, but that's not the case at all. That's not how a new creation heart would actually live, right? This hope and this desire for Emmanuel actually changes how we live today, and we get this. What you desire, what you hope for, changes how you live. I mean, it reminds me of even on, um, on Friday, uh, we, we went and got our Christmas tree. We, like, decorated the whole house. Put up, me and the boys put up lights on the outside. You know, it was a whole day, and uh, the kids really wanted to watch Home Alone, so we, like, watched Home Alone with them at night, and they were like, we need to order pizza and eat pizza. And they're like, we love the pizza scene when we eat pizza. And so we got Domino's because we're cool, you know, and... Uh, we, you know, gave the kids dominoes, and we all dished up. We were starving. We'd worked hard all day, and we sit down to watch the movie, and uh, 10 minutes are going by in the, in the movie, and I'm, like, on my third slice, you know, easily. And Elizabeth's eating our, f- our fourth-born Isla. She's, you know, pounding it away. And our other three have multiple slices on their plates, and they're just sitting there not touching it. And I'm like, what is going on? Elizabeth tells me, like, they're, wa- she, they're waiting for the pizza scene. They want to wait until the pizza scene and then they'll start eating, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, wow, that's amazing. Right? They had this strong desire, right? One that I don't understand, right? But this strong desire, they, they were hoping all day to watch Home Alone and eat pizza, and they had their mind set. The time to do that is right when they eat the pizza in the movie, and they had this strange discipline that was inexplicable, right? Because they were starving, but they did it with like joy, why? Because they had their hope set on something. Right? It didn't work for me. It didn't motivate me at all. It didn't thrill me with hope, right? But this heavenly scene, you guys, it's meant to motivate and thrill believers with hope in a way that has much more gravity to it than watching Home Alone eating pizza. That's for sure. But, but it doesn't motivate those who don't love Christ. 
right? This is what this future hope gives us, though. Do you see this? This is a sure hope. Like, this day is coming. If your heart beats for Jesus, who conquered for you, you'll live with joy in the meantime waiting for that day. And and many times it won't feel even hard. And knowing that dramatically, guys, it cuts through the fog of today. So, yes, we live very differently today. We live as conquerors today, following the one who conquered for us. We endure, right, because our hearts aren't set on the love and approval that comes from this world, but on the love and approval that we receive in Christ, right? We are faithful to Him because He has been faithful to us. We aren't cowardly because we are proud to call Him our home, right? We don't worship other idols because we know the one true God who satisfies us, right? We don't reek of sin because we are recipients of God's love and grace, and we reek of that grace and that love, right? We don't hate and murder, if even in our heart, because we once hated God, yet He loved us. We don't look for pleasure in sin. We find our true pleasure in the living water, Jesus, and we don't lie because we know who we are. We know who we are, and we see who we are becoming, and that is enough for us. Guys, how do you get through the hard times? How do you see through the fog? How do you endure to the end with joy? It's right here. Here's the thrill of hope. Father God, this morning, I do pray that you would give strength to those who are weak, God, you are the one who does that. God, you are the one who never grows tired or weary. You don't sleep or slumber. God, you remain every day as our steady rock. No matter what kind of waves might pound against our lives, Lord, we stand upon you with the surest footing uh, that we could ever dream of. So, Lord, this morning I pray that that we would worship you as the one who has conquered for us. The only reason why we can look upon these pages of Scripture in the end is because you have done that. You've conquered for us, Lord. You are the reason that this could be our eternal shore. God, would you, would you set our hearts with hope upon you? How would we long for the new heavens and new earth because we long to be with you? I pray that you would just continue to whet our appetites for that great day and cause us to live differently today in the meantime. Living out this newness of life, Lord, that you've called us into. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, for redeeming us, and we look forward to the day where you will come again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.